going to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jay Park. If you're a kind of conventional conservative like I have been for most of my life, you've been, I'm 49, you can tell I'm quoting folks. So I grew up in the Reagan era and I was trained to believe that the singular threat to our liberty was government. That's what Reagan said. He was probably right at the time and it takes a while if you've grown up believing that to readjust to the new reality, which is now... The singular threat to your freedoms, to your freedom of association, certainly your freedom of speech, to your ability to think, is technology. It's the big tech companies. It's Google, primarily, but it's also Facebook and Twitter and the rest. Simple question. Who knows more about you, Google or the Social Security Administration? There's no contest. That is a quote, and welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour, folks. Alongside me this evening is Southern Wood. Hello, Joey. That's a quote from uh, Tucker Carlson, an interview he gave to good old Lou Rockwell right down the road in Auburn. And that first part, where he was trained as part of a devotee to the Reagan revolution, the government is the problem, not the solution to our problems. It is the greatest threat to our liberty. But now Tucker Carlson says... Well, it's not It's not the government that's a threat now. It's technology. It's an interesting point of view. And Tucker, in many ways, was ahead of the curve. And that's to his credit. This populist nationalist moment going on on the right. I think he's wrong. I still think, and I wonder what you folks think. I wonder what you think, Southern Wood. I still think the greatest threat to our liberty by far, is government. And not just this government, but historically, it has always been government. And here's the catch of it. Government is supposed to be the guarantor of our liberties. Government is supposed to be the guarantor of our rights. Yeah. And so it's like a utter betrayal in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I think happens, Joey, It's. If you try to tell a half-truth, you're going to be found out. Mm -hmm. But if you just go 180 degrees in the opposite direction, it is initially, it is is so just perplexing to you that you can't believe it. But then it's like it almost makes sense Mm. when you go the opposite direction. You never answered the question, though. What is the greater danger? Google or Social Security? Government by far. 
Not Social oh, Security. Yeah, oh, no, was... which one knows more about you? Google, probably. Which one, he did, he said, which one knows more about you? Okay. Google knows more about me, but you know what? I told Google a lot of things about me. I use their services. I use Gmail, all this stuff. I use Google Docs. Okay. I use Google Search Engine. And yeah, so Google knows a lot about me, and I know Google knows a lot about me, and I knew when I was doing what I was doing with Google that they would know a lot about me. Whereas with the Social Security Administration, they may not know as much as Google, but I didn't sign up for the Social Security Administration. I didn't tell them, yeah, you can take some money out of my check every time I get paid. I didn't sign up for it. I was born into it. And if I could vote against it, I would. But no, that's not allowed. Mm-hmm. So that's the key difference. Does Google have too much power? I think it's an open question. And I'm happy to entertain the idea maybe Google is manipulating search results. They probably are manipulating search results. Would that be like an in-kind donation if they're trying to sway people towards a certain political party? Well, It's an interesting question, and I'm happy having that. But by far, the greatest threat to liberty is the government. Because Google, at the end of the day, can't come arrest me. Right. And that's... And, and you willingly... Sign up for those things. Yeah. You hit accept every time you download something. Every time you yeah. put something on your phone or your computer, you accept the terms of that contract. And and guys, look here. If you're out there and you don't think that you're being watched 24 hours a day, you're a damn fool. I, I mean that's. I mean there is no other way to put it. My television that we have right now, and it's just a common flat screen television yeah. but it's a smart tv yeah i have one myself and i know that it's watching yes. me the whole time but i mean i you pretty much don't want to see clay <laughs> sitting <laughs> in his pajama pants i can attest to watching that. game of thrones i mean that's that's are like, you the type of guy when you're watching tv after a long day's work that you stick your hand down your pants yeah and it's not, and we're not suggesting anything I'm, untoward I, or no, perverted. No, no, I'm it's, Al freaking Bundy. You're right. No, it feels good. Like, give yourself a little rest. Get yeah. the, loosen up the belt a little bit. There, well, there's something about that. Because even, like, when I get in the bed, I mean, I just, I will take my hand and just shove it up under Lauren's back. Right. And because there's something about just having some pressure on you. I don't know if it's, it goes it feels back good. to childhood. It's comforting. Somebody yes. holding your hand or something. But yeah, I mean, I'd sit there in my chair and hands down the pants. But you assume that your smart TV is seeing you do that. Yeah. And, and your penguin pajama... Wait, that's me. I have penguin pajama pants. <laughs> Might have pirates on them. <laughs> pirates. <laughs> and dragons. <laughs> and blonde-headed chicks. Oh, you are a fan of the mother of dragons. Oh, my God. For folks who I don't... Hope- I hope she ends up being. I think Jon Snow is going to end right. up being the the king of the seven kingdoms. And let's but. fill in people who don't know. For those who don't know, myself and Southernwood here are both big Game of Thrones fans. You're more recent vintage, though. You, yeah, yeah. We just started in December. Yeah, and you love it. Oh my gosh! It is that is like. Probably the best series as far as made-for-TV type 
uh, movies or or shows. I mean, it's it's just it's incredible. It's right. incredible, and it's so incredible. You know what I honestly think is going to happen? The White Knight is going to end up sitting on the throne. That is one idea that's out there that is going to end in a very depressing manner. It's going it, to, and that's how disturbing that it is, or or how real that right. that thing is yeah and it's a weird common you know i've heard people critique this the only things we hold in common these days are like these cultural moments and i'm like it's weird that this sort of glib just hand waving that goes on if you really get into game of thrones i'm not saying it's like reading the bible but if you know the story well and you're looking and watching it more than just, oh, oh, that girl doesn't have any clothes on. Oh, oh, that guy, you know, chopped that dude's hand off. Like, if you actually watch the story and the character development and what's actually being portrayed over now mm-hmm. several years of telling this story, it's a remarkable story that you can learn things from you, while being entertained. It's a great show. And so if that's what a lot of people, millions of people have in common, I say so be it. So be it. I mean, if now there's going to be millions of Avengers Endgame, the culmination of the Marvel Universe, if that's what not only people, millions in this country, but around the world are going to share in common, there could be worse things we share in common. I think that's mm-hmm. a good thing. That What's happening right now? Um, I was talking off air to Dan Morris, and we got talking about how, you know, we had Donald Trump on the show. Dan got to interview Donald Trump. Yeah. Before Donald mm-hmm. Trump became president. Right. And I remember that moment. And I remember saying to myself, this is a different type of Republican in many ways. I mean, culturally, he's so far removed than the other jokers we've put up there. He's not an evangelical Christian conservative. That's what Mike Pence is. Trump, for most of his life, has kind of been this right. liberal, casino-owning, WrestleMania-hosting, like, New York mogul who's kind of coarse and rough around the edges and he sleeps with porn stars and Playboy Playmates and that's not who you would think the Republicans would elect, let alone rally behind. But that is what has happened. I mean, the Republican Party is now Trump's party. And I think the fact that, say, I've heard this from some of my left-wing friends, how could evangelicals support that man? See, because evangelicals have gotten smart. The goal shouldn't be to install a theocracy and that everybody that's representing you represents you in every way. Right. Maybe some people would like that. Sure. That it would be somebody sitting next to you in the pew at church on Wednesday nights or Sundays. But at the end of the day, it's not really about that. I think a lot of evangelicals understood it's about the Supreme Court. It's about the political pro. He is yes. our wrecking ball, mm-hmm. our bulldog that will at least get things done that folks that might be more like us, Republicans of the past, never got done. Yeah, and I think I think you raise a very good point right there. It is uh, at at a certain time in the past, it was. I'll I'll use the example of abortion. I don't want to get into that again. We already did that, but yeah, we've already done that, but. On the example of abortion, I've heard people that are pro-life, you know, come down to there's a bill up that, okay, we're going to outlaw abortion except for rape and incest. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the 
strong, strict pro-life people say, no, not even in that case, because none is acceptable, so I'm not supporting this. And you're like, but, dude, that's going to cut out like 95% of abortions if you support it. But I I can't support that. And they go to that extreme instead of saying, okay, well, we'll take this little bit. And that's what Trump has done. Trump is the Republican. He's not really what we consider a Republican. He's like, yeah, okay, we can do part of that. Yeah, but I want to spend $5 trillion on roads and bridges. Right. That's not Republican. I want to build a wall. That is Republican. He's kind of, you know, both ways, and I think the Republicans as a whole, hmm. not the not the far right, I think they're coming into saying this is common sense, yeah. and that's dragging the Democrats that are in the middle saying, you know, what the guy's talking about, that's common sense. But here's here's the thing. When I remember hearing Trump on these airwaves and then the rally he did down in Mobile, and then people like Tucker Carlson and so many others that are conservative commentators sort of not just use the language of liberty, but almost poo-poo it. Like, liberty's not the answer here. Look at all these technological changes. We can't be dabbling in libertarian theory and freedom. We can't even still kneel at the altar of Ronald Reagan anymore. Government isn't the biggest threat. It's it's big corporations or it's the changing global world or all this stuff like that. And that aspect of what's happening in our public discourse, for lack of a better word, the public debate, makes me nervous. It just makes me nervous because I think, as I said last night, liberty is the one way we can solve a lot of our problems. Not in some utopian manner, but it would help relieve a lot of pressure. If, for instance, here's one liberty-based program. Devolve a lot of power that is currently in Washington, D.C. back to the states and preferably back to local governments. The more local, the better. Okay, I, I've, I have no problem. With I know, that. I know you, you have no. I mean, problem that's with that. that. That sounds wonderful, right? That's just one example. And there's a lot of examples, and the things that Trump has done that I like would be as part of a say. It's a libertarian president. The things he's done that I like, Trump has done. He cut taxes, not as much as I would like, but I'm not a perfectionist. We're denied perfection on this side of the Garden of Eden. Correct. So, okay, he cut taxes. I like that. My taxes went down a little bit. Good on you, President Trump. He's pared back a lot of regulations. I like that. He's created more certainty. It's not necessarily the the dollar figure of regulations or the amount of regulations, but I think he's created a lot more certainty in what sort of regulations are going to be coming down the pipe. But there are certain aspects. I'm not really talking about Trump here. I'm talking about the the future of the right, so to speak. And uh, I'll I'll read just this opening paragraph from this piece I pulled up. Because originally, where I was quoting from Tucker Carlson, uh, that is from a guy named Donald Devine. He worked for Reagan. And he has a piece called The Nationalist Delusion, which essentially says, 
what's under the hood of people like Tucker Carlson, which he doesn't deny Tucker's concerns. He doesn't deny Tucker's brilliance and Tucker fighting the good fight, especially against the left. But he says he thinks a lot of nationalists, because they're worried about technological changes and big tech and whatever else is going on, the changing economy in general, that now we have a big service sector and we need more manufacturing in the country. He goes and crunches the numbers in particular on what the economy is actually made up of. I'll give you, for instance, when do you think the so-called service economy, which you're a part of in your everyday life, when did the so-called service economy overtake the industrial economy? Hmm. It's 80% today. When did it overtake it would have been probably in the early 70s. Here's the number. Because this is what a lot of late 60s, somewhere in that area. You're way off. And I would be way off. I would have said about what you just said before I read this. But this is fascinating. In fact, as early as 1840, service jobs and output were already dominant over industrial employment. Well, both, obviously, in 1840, trailed agriculture. Yeah. Service, the service economy today constitutes an overwhelming 80% of U.S. employment. They represent about 70% measured by the economic value of its output, or most critically, by national economic value added. Moreover, contrary to the nationalist charge, U.S. manufacturing today is very competitive as measured by the value of its products. China does have higher manufacturing total value added at $3.25 trillion to America's $2.1 trillion, or $2 trillion for China and $1.8 trillion for the U.S. measured by output. So the difference is actually quite small. And the U.S. is much richer per capita than China, which has forced the latter to spread its wealth among three times as many people who are much poorer and more restive. They're not working as much. Worldwide, China has about 20% of manufacturing value. The U.S. has 18%. And the EU at 16%, Japan at 10%, South Korea at 4 That gives America and China two-thirds of the world's industrial output. But his point he goes on to make, Mr. Devine does, is that in the nationalists, you'll hear a lot of them, the populist, economic kind of nationalists, is they want to balance out the, we need to make things again in America. Well, we are making things. We do very well, and we make things. We're competing with a Chinese economy that's really trying to develop, and we're still like neck and neck with them, even though 80% of our economy is a service economy. And the service economy is a lot of very high quality jobs. Like the biggest portion of the service economy is so called financials. And people start thinking, oh, the big banks. It's the big banks. No. The biggest number in, say, the financials, which is like, I think, two trillion worth or something like that, is real estate. And You don't need some highfalutin, fancy college degree to become a successful real estate agent, nor should you. So I think there are great, all sorts of people that change their lives and make a better life for themselves and others by becoming a real estate agent. Eddie Bader can speak to that. So his point is, okay, you want to balance things out, how? Like you want to use tariffs? 
like and tariffs are a lot better option, he would admit, than trying to do like the Green New Deal. I mean, there or a very intricate, like fifty layers of bureaucracy welfare state to help people in poor Appalachia or whatnot. But his answer is that what we need to get back to, and there are some really good ideas out there, because the charge against libertarians like myself is I don't care about the working class people of the country. I do. I mean, as much as I can. Because I am a big believer and you have to make your own life better. Nobody else is going to do it for you. And certainly not the government. But if we are going to give people helping hands, there are ways to do that. And the best way by far... to build a middle class, goes all the way back to what Alexis de Tocqueville and a guy named Robert Putman, who's a brilliant social scientist, have Mm -hmm. talked about. Voluntary group membership, and especially church participation, is the precondition for social engagement. Did we build America as a techno-industrial powerhouse, or did those groups provide the material from which it could grow with very few laws to help others other than against coercion. This is the point, is that America becomes this economic powerhouse not through a government central plan. It becomes an economic powerhouse because people had strong bonds at the local level. Whether you're talking about good small businesses or good strong church communities or things like the Kiwanis Club or whatever. It could be not explicitly a church, but like the Knights of the Columbus, charities all over the place. It's all sorts of things that made us strong. And what he means by we, and this is what I, there's a great Doug Stanhope bit. Like, yeah, we really stuck it to the French. Or no, we really saved the French. We should have stuck it to them. We really saved the French in World War II. And Doug's like, Tommy, who do you mean by we? Like, maybe our grandfather's did, but we were drunk last night at a Wendy's drive-thru. We didn't do that. So there's, it brings me back to when Trump was on these airwaves. I get it. People, I think, are nervous about all this change going on. It's not just change in the makeup of the economy, but it's change in how we communicate with one another. Like, it makes everybody nervous. And then add on top of that, this element of the conversation coming from the left of America's never been any damn good. America's an oppressive, racist, patriarchal, exploitive system that's never been any good. The whole idea is just that we've ever been great as propaganda. So you add that into the mix with all this change going on, and Donald Trump comes around and says, well, actually, America can be great again. And we're in this together. I understood that the message played, and it played very well. But again, what Trump has done that I like hasn't been the... Like when he said at the Republican National Convention, I alone can fix it. I'm like, uh, uh uh-huh. But here's an interesting thing. Trump has said on the campaign trail and when he's been president, he said what I think can rightfully be called uh, a knee-jerk kind of authoritarianism. He likes it when people are really tough. But there's an interesting piece I read yesterday. For all his blather and all his tweets and him wanting to, can I pardon myself? Like, stuff like that. For all that talk and bluster, he has not expanded executive power. 
Now, he's run with the ball on the expansions that came before him. He's drawn more people than Obama. He's probably using the surveillance state that W started. He's declaring a national emergency, which had been declared 30 times before him by past presidents. He's used the tools in the toolbox, but he hasn't created new tools, which is an interesting thing. He talks his big game like... You know, the Bill of Rights and this political correctness gets in the way of us taking out terrorists or whatever. Like, I would kill terrorist families. He said that at a debate. I mean, he will, when he wants to be forceful, he'll say it. But he doesn't follow through. And I think that's actually a good thing on many of those fronts. But here's where I think we're a little bit lost. The number one problem of all public debate about politics and economics is the failure to name the state. If this would change, so would public opinion. Here's my point, folks. There's no shortage of examples. People talk about health care for all, solving climate change, providing security in old age, universal educational access, boosting wages, ending discrimination... And you can add to the list without end. But that's only one side of the aisle. The other side, the right, speaks of national identity, protecting jobs, making us more moral, forming cultural cohesion, providing security against the foreign enemy, and so on and so forth. But this is all besides the point. What all of this really means, for the most part, is put the state in charge. To solve that problem. What's strange is the unwillingness to say it outright. That's the thing. We don't call them government-run schools. We call them public schools. Indoctrination centers Mm -hmm. is what they are. The plans the politicians have for our lives would come across as far less compelling if they admitted the following brutal truth. Here's the brutal truth, folks. There are really only two ways to allocate goods and services in society. The markets, which rely on individual choice, and the state, which it runs on compulsion and coercion. No one has ever found a third way. It's either voluntary or involuntary. You trade or you give or you compel and you take. You can try to mix the two. Some markets and some state-run operations, but there always is and always will be a toggling between the two. If you replace markets, the result will be more force via the state, which means bureaucratic administration and rule by force. If you reduce the role of the state, you will rely more on markets. This is the logic of political choice, and there's no escaping it. This is a great truth of political economy. But what's interesting, and even though we've never seen any evidence to really dispute this basic fact, it's the great unsayable truth. Seasons of political rhetoric fly by with no frank discussion of what precisely this or that proposal would require of the state. How much coercion, how much compulsion, and how that will affect our lives, much less a serious analysis of the risk of making a problem worse by replacing market forces. And let's be clear before we hit this break. By markets, we just we don't mean just money changing hands, which is a, 
amazing thing that has made us all better off. Even when you don't like the guy across the street competing against you, he's still making you better off by either making you work harder, he's competing against you, or he's still helping society. He's providing a service or a good. But the market and where prices are, you know, essentially coordinate people's decisions. We're talking much more than that when we say markets. We also mean philanthropy, familial organizations, houses of religion, churches, volunteering to work without pay, and everything else in the social order that relies on human cooperation, voluntary trade. There are infinite varieties of the way markets work in our human lives. The variations are contingent on our cultures, our norms, our traditions, and so on. You can have a market in New York City or a market in Montgomery, Alabama, and they're both markets that work on voluntary exchange, but they're going to be a little different, and that's a good thing. There can be more or less voluntary ways the market expresses itself. Just like there can be more or less coercive forms of statism. There can be totalitarian communism or fascism, or there can be kind of what we have now, which is a mixed economy. I I really say this, and I've thought about it a lot. If not for the Bill of Rights, I think we would have long sunk into fascism. No doubt. Long ago. No doubt. Thank God for the Bill of Rights. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's that's what... We use the term regulation now... But that's what regulations are. That is the government controlling yeah. how you operate your business. And so you are in some way a form of a government agency. Whether you want to be or not, you have to abide by their rules. And more so than the tax deal that, that went through a couple of years ago. Dropping regulations means so much more to individual companies. But, Joey, here's the catch on that. All they said is we're not enforcing the regulations. Did not remove them from the books. Right. When Colorado, I think, was the first state as a whole that legalized marijuana. Right. They didn't say, okay, well, marijuana's legal. They just said, we're not going to enforce that. And then until Jeff Sessions come in, he says, yeah, I'm going to enforce it because it's still the law of the land. Then Congress neutered him. Exactly. We're not going to give you any money to do that. And so they do that kind of crap. They they say, oh, yep, you can do this. But we're not going to remove the law because at some point, at some day, we might want to come back and enforce it. I think it's that. And it's also put it on it's you. too difficult to remove. Like we don't want to take the time for Congress to actually repeal something. Oh, you mean <laughs> do their job? Right. Right. Well, we got to hit this break real quick. I'm feeling good tonight. I think part, You're on a road part of that is because I've been working out, brother, brother. been lifting up weights and putting them back down. Where you been working out, Joey? Express Fitness 24-7. It's in the name. As soon as you become a member, and it's not a year-long contract, any of that garbage, any of that nonsense. No, if you want to go try it out, it's month to month. And once you become a member, you pay that very fair monthly rate. You get 24-7 access. All the locations for Express Fitness 24-7. I love it because I have never wanted for equipment. Every time I go in there, 
everything's available. State-of-the-art equipment, getting in a good deadlift or good squat or bench press and doing the glamour lifts like the curls and, you know, whatever. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Will they kind of show you how to get started? If I Absolutely. mean, I'm not a weightlifter. Right. If I went in there, I mean, will they kind of yeah, train me they'll ask you, what are a your... little bit on how to use the weights and all that stuff? Yeah, they'll ask you, what are your goals? What are you going for? And they'll give you a few free personal training sessions to get you on the right path. I mean, it's it's win-win, folks. Win-win all the way around. Makes me feel not only better physically, look better in the mirror, but I feel sharper mentally. Like it's a great mental test of starting your day and you feel right. So if you're looking to feel that way, check out Express Fitness 24-7. Best way to do that is ExpressFitness24, the number 24.com. ExpressFitness24.com. Check out what location's best for you. I'm going to the one on Zelda Road, but there's locations in Bradville, Millbrook, Wetumpka, Clanton, Pine, Pine Level. Level. So many. So check them out. ExpressFitness24.com. That's ExpressFitness24-7. And tell them Joey sent you. Joey Clark. Joey Clark. Welcome back, folks. Bringing this thing on home here in the last 18 minutes of the Joey Clark Radio Hour. If you're interested in hearing the whole show, if not past archive shows, there's podcast. a podcast. Yeah. yeah. iTunes. Google Podcasts, Spotify, that's SoundCloud. Uh, uh, SoundCloud, that's one. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I hear. Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Joey Clark Radio that's Hour. That's what I do on the weekends, like when I'm out working in my garden or something. I'll just hit the... Uh, SoundCloud, and I'll go to the last Joey Clark Radio Hour episode, and I'll hit it and just let it play in my earbuds. I've been listening back while to I'm some. Out there. Some nights, I hear this redneck on there right. every once in a while. Well, and some nights it's like dynamite, man. Like if there's magic in the studio. Then other nights, like mm, I sounded dire that night. I sounded cranky. I just sound dumb that night. Well, Those things it happen. Happens, yeah, man. it happens. We're we're imperfect people. Uh, but I'm doing the best I can, and I'm just speaking from the heart here tonight, folks. I don't like the nationalist economic program. I just don't, because I think it's misguided. I think it sounds like arguments that have been happening for the last 200 years, and the folks that have advanced these arguments have been wrong. But they want to wave their hand and say, well, it's uh, what Buttigieg says. He's, Capitalism is a threat to democracy. Huh? Yeah, no, democracy is not only crazy. a threat to capitalism, but democracy without any restrictions or sense of freedom for the individual, especially in his economic life, is a threat to democracy. Democracy is a threat to democracy, honestly. Yeah. Democracy <laughs> always kills the thing it supposedly loves liberty. Democracy is terrible in its purest form. 
Right. I guess I it's mean, better the, than the, monarchy, but the, you know. well, no, I, I know it's it is it is not better than monarchy. It's better to be a monarchy than a true democracy. Well, I mean, yeah. you're you're talking about majority the, rule. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're talking about the old cliche: two wolves and one sheep decide what we're going to eat for dinner. You know what's going to win? That is true democracy. Right. It's a two to one vote. And so but I've heard people like Tucker. It's not just Buttigieg and Democrats. I heard people like Tucker Carlson said, "I'm not a slave to an economic theory or system. I'm a citizen first. If there are no, I, why should I have to leave the the land that I've grew up in and my great grandfather helped bring us here in order to go find a job somewhere else and be a cog in some stupid smarmy douchey tech company regime? It's something I've heard Tucker say. It's like, well, because life's unfair, Tucker. Number one." And actually, the guy he was talking to was Ben Shapiro, and Shapiro's like, have you not heard the biblical call to adventure, leave the land of your fathers? Like, okay, but there's that. And I get where he's coming from, if I could be charitable for a moment. That sucks. If you're living in a part of rural America and the job opportunities go away, it's not fun. That's a mild way of putting it. It can be downright tragic. So I get that, but let's give the devil his due. Here's the economic nationalism. And I'm not by nationalism I don't mean love of country. I don't I mean thinking of us as one collective unit that has very clear singular interest as a unit, the the big royal we. Like that's that's not it's almost non-existent. There are certain things that yes we share in common. And often that's war. Like, if you want to get Americans who can't stand each other to join together, I, I, have, like, China try to invade our shores. I'm I, all with you there. We got the same interests. I got to agree with you on that one. But Unfortunately, th- I have to agree with you on that. But this is more of a scholarly approach from an economic nationalist, self-proclaimed, guy named Daniel McCarthy. He says, this economic nationalism is less about economic than it is about nationalism. That is, it takes account of the different needs of different walks of life and regions of the country. To prevent such a crisis, the goal should be to balance farmers, urban capital, and labor with the post-industrial classes by strengthening, quote, the productive economy against the largely fictional economy of administrators and clerks. This balance requires building the manufacturing sector against the service one, especially against the challenge from China, which will determine the strategic and economic environment in which we live unless we change. Now, McCarthy goes on, libertarians, and it don't have to be some anarchist libertarian. You could be Milton Friedman. You could be, he wasn't perfect, but you could be Ronald Reagan. Like, at least Reagan used the language of liberty, and to his credit. But libertarian response to the crisis, according to this gentleman, McCarthy, who's an economic nationalist, is that by saying, this is how libertarians respond, no nationalist program for strengthening manufacturing for the sake of the middle class is workable because the social philosophers Frederick Hayek and Ludwig von Mises demonstrated that all economic interventions by government involve insufficient knowledge of consumer preferences and specific market circumstances. But technology has changed so radically, McCarthy claims, that it has undermined classic assumptions about the market. This follows a similar argument that's been made by thinkers from Thomas Malthus to John Stuart Mill to John Maynard Keynes to Thomas Friedman today. So what actually is the libertarian response to this nationalist challenge? Well, going all the way back to St. Adam Smith to F.A. Hayek, 
it has been that increasingly complex technology, the more technology becomes more complex and more pervasive in our everyday lives, actually makes the market even more necessary to sort out and adjust the new complicating forces in a way that lumbering centralized bureaucracies and political and politicized nation-states cannot. The nationalist program to balance the whole economy is the epitome of failed industrial planning. Its preference for a so-called productive manufacturing sector that alone can generate a self-sufficient middle-class society as opposed to a so-called fictional service sector basically rests on the single datum that U.S. manufacturing employment has declined drastically from 35% of jobs in 1910 to merely 10% today. And that brings us back to actually the service economy overtook the industrial economy in 1840. And I think I think that goes along with prosperity, though. Yeah. The more prosperous you are, the more, it, I mean, it lends to those service jobs. You know, I mean, dadgum. And believe it or not, Joey, 1975, everybody did not have an air conditioner in their house. Or a refrigerator. Uh, well, they probably probably had an icebox or refrigerator. Well, they had an icebox, but not an electric refrigerator. But not then, the poorest. with prosperity, air conditioning came along, and I'm very familiar with this trade. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, I, I know what's going on. And uh, and then once you have that item that's attached to your house, and you get used to it, then you want to maintain it you want to upkeep it it's not like you buy it and when it breaks you go oh it's broke well we'll just go back to the way we were you get spoiled i mean that's the only way i can put it we get spoiled i mean it is so easy in this country we complain about the temperature in this studio up here because of the way that that unit works over there and we're just complaining because it's too cold or too hot, but it still works, and it runs all the time. And that leads to, well, if it's not working, if it breaks, we got to have somebody to fix it. Yep. Vehicles. Yep. You know, we've gone from the, the old-time vehicle was a horse pulling a wagon. If the horse broke, you just killed the horse, ate it, and got another horse right. and stuck it in there. There's no service industry. You didn't call the veterinarian to come fix the horse when he broke his leg because he stepped in a hole. Well, and here's the thing. Trump bringing up, and all these, Tucker Carlson or this guy Daniel McCarthy, whatever economic nationalist or populist, whatever word you want to use, the concerns they raise about rural America that used to rely on manufacturing is now suffering, that's a legitimate concern. That's a real problem. They relied on manufacturing for their jobs. But I think these folks that go, this is a political program and politics can fix it, are making a fundamental mistake. Misguided. It's very misguided. I mean, this was the fundamental era of of the progressive era. And there's nothing different, I think, in this newest thing. Even though you're obsessing the right problems, I, I think your solutions at best are symbolic. I get that. But you can't take those symbols too seriously. You need to let people figure it out. The best way to build a self-reliant middle class isn't from the federal government. And it probably isn't even from state governments. It's strong local institutions. Whether it's a small business 
or a church or a charity group or somebody looking to help out others, get them back on their feet, teach them the basic ways to take care of themselves and their neighbors. And I think there are a lot of people, especially in the bigger cities, that don't understand how crucial that is. Because if you're in a big city, it makes sense. You might have a little more central control. So many people packed in one place. But if you're in Pentlala, Alabama, you need these local social bonds in order to take care of one another. Dude, it was something I thought about this weekend. We had a family reunion. And, I mean, these were the, the my Uncle Wiley that was doing the thing. He's in his late 80s or so. And he was talking about our family and went down through the tree and showed a bunch of pictures and, and different things. And it was back in like 1920, 1930, 1940. And he was talking about, and it, one thing that hit me, it was this one family. And he said they had, you know, 11 children, and this one had to go live with. Uh, Mama over yonder, this one had to go live with Aunt Sister, and this one had to go there because the the man of the house had died. And it hit me so hard, it was like, that's the way we used to live. My mother lived that way. It, they didn't get welfare yeah. that paid for her. Right. She went and lived with relatives, and relatives took care of people. People took in people that they did not even know or have any relation to. People used to do that. And now that the government has stepped in and said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to give you, you know, $650 a month for rent. We're going to give you $250 a month for your power bill. We're going to give you $500 a month for it. Right. It's, it's a suck life, but it's enough to keep you alive instead of your family taking care of you or a stranger even taking you in and i mean it really touched me when uncle wiley was talking about that this weekend and it hit me i was like damn that's what we used to do and we don't do that anymore because the government's taking over and that's the libertarian side of me takes over at that point is like no the government does not have to do this we can do this as a community in Pentlala. Right. If and it I may see, not be perfect, but neither is the so-called government solution. At least you'll still have your freedom. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, and let me be clear here. If For folks who listened earlier in the day, there's a certain handsome radio host who talks a lot about the globalist corporatist whores. He's right about that. There are a lot of globalist corporatist whores. But Mm -hmm. these sort of multinationals that play people and use governments for their own ends and they use people as means to their own ends, as a cogs in their machines. But here's the thing. If the nationalist program is the government will make the economy more balanced and fair, who do you think they're going to go to? Who are going to be the smart people, masters of the universe, in order to create this central plan it's probably going to be a lot of globalist corporatist whores who wrap themselves in the nationalist mantle and say no i'm a good boy now you can trust me i'm smart i know how to deal with this corporatism globalism in that sense the unholy alliance between big corporations and government 
the state is a huge problem. But by giving the government more hope that it's going to save us, that doesn't solve the problem. Even if you're calling them out while you're doing it. And that brings it all the way back to something I said earlier. Regulations. That's the thing that government can control. They can tell you, yeah, come in. We're going to give you, you know, you don't even have to pay taxes. However, you've got to do this, 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 and this. The regulations, that's the fascist side of government, period. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that I want done away with is the regulations. They let you keep your property, but they tell you how to use it. That's right. That's fascism. Oh, my God, don't get me started. The only thing that's kept us from becoming a fascist nation is the Bill of Rights. We still have the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion and freedom of association and so many other things. But our economic freedoms were freer than, say, other places. But that ship has sailed. And it's back to that original question. People are concerned about big tech. It's Google or the Social Security Administration know more about you. Obviously, Google does. But I gave that information to Google. And I tend to like Google. What I don't like about Google is when they work with the government to, say, spy on people in an overt way. Where they play nice, or Mark Zuckerberg's now calling for regulation. Why? Because he wants his ass off the hook. He wants the government to take the blame. Right. If there's a problem with big tech, maybe it's that the government has given them certain liability privileges. Well, when he starts starts censoring people on his platform, then he's responsible for every single thing that is not censored. Right. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. You can't do that. And I'm just tired of this idea. Every four years, every two years, when election comes around, that we have to recreate the wheel and deny the basic fact that what made this country great in the first place is strong local bonds. People with a spirit of religion and hope in themselves and their future and basic liberties. In the economic realm and the social realm, that is what's made us great. Has it always been perfect? Absolutely no. not. We're working towards a more perfect union. But this idea that every time there's a crisis, we must now dispense with this foundation that has gotten us so far is utter nonsense. Instead of using a sledgehammer, maybe we need to use a scalpel. And I think we do that so many times, or has been done so many times all throughout history, is we overreact to every single thing. What happened? Plane flies into a, a building yeah. on 9-11. And what do we security. do? What do we do? We willingly give up all of our freedom and rights to the Department of Homeland Security. Like and we go start said, a few wars, yeah. And say... Y'all take care of it, which I'm real suspect. I'm not, I'm not a truther, but it, it's really suspicious how... Oh, you remember he, talk of the peace dividend now that the Cold War's over? When's the last time you heard about the peace dividend, folks? They, oh, now we don't have to spend as much on the military. We can do give people more their money back. Uh-uh, that's gone away. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not a truther either, but it was very... Interesting how they used that 